The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome this Monday morning. Let's get into your headlines. U.S. stock futures rise sharply as Treasury yields back away from last week's highs. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden pushes the Senate to pass his $1.9 trillion COVID rescue package as the House of Representatives approves the plan. If we act now decisively, quickly and boldly, we can finally get ahead of this virus. We can finally get our economy moving again. The people of this country have suffered far too much for too long. China's factory activity expanded at slowest pace in nine months as weak export demand and COVID flare-ups hit output. Warren Buffett tells investors to, quote, never bet against America in his closely watched annual shareholder letter. The Oracle of Omaha reveals he bought $24.7 billion of Berkshire Hathaway's own stock last year and says there's more to come. And Logitech boosts its fiscal year outlook and predicts stronger long-term sales growth ahead of the company's investor day. to say there are a few nerves across markets last week and not exactly calmed by a slightly firmer finish on some of the major markets. What you've got this week, investors very much closely eyeing that bond yield. Don't forget we've had progress around the $1.9 trillion stimulus that President Biden has been pushing forward to restore the US economy on the back of COVID. But uh, so far, investors have seen just a little bit of a lightening up on that US 10-year yield and that set the scene for a stronger day already on Wall Street. We're marching higher in all of the major indices. Dow Jones futures indicating a, a bounce of 200 plus points. So very strong bounce to the upside. And you can see that's also matched in the technology sector as well. And that's been quite key as we've watched closely the fortunes in the United States. There's been a story of rotation away from technology into some of the cyclical areas. Friday session are back into the big technology names. So investors have seen a, a very stop-start trading pattern with uh, certainly a fair amount of nerves as well. But a lot of that concentrated around this US 10-year yield. Don't forget we spiked to the 1.61% level at the high last week. We've come off that and that's made quite a difference to some of the support props coming back into the market. So we have drifted south by uh, a fair amount. But that said, we've still moved very aggressively in a short period of time. The US markets, Let's just take a look at that finish that we saw across on the major boards. Still red, as you can see. But this time round, you saw investors going back into the tech names. Microsoft, in fact, one of the big moving stocks to the upside for the Nasdaq. Uh, one of the falling stocks actually was a technology name as well. It was Salesforce. And that was a stock that had a negative impact on both the Dow and S&P. This on the back of some of the earnings outlook. Investors a little bit disappointed with what lies ahead. But you did see that story as you, the yield came down. Investors, again, willing to pick up some of those big technology names. Eight out of 10, uh, eight out of 11, I should say, sectors of the S&P were negative, though, in the uh, trading session, which tells you still a breadth of selling that was taking place in the market. Energy was one of the underlying parts where investors were just a little bit cautious. That did fall, but uh, technology, the better performer in session. 
And let's switch across to what we're seeing out of the opening calls. The markets here in the Friday session very much are playing catch-up. They didn't have too much of a sell-off Thursday. So Friday session, you saw a lot of that reading translate onto the boards. 1.6 plus percent down for the stock share of 600. But deeper falls in individual parts of the market. For instance, 2.5% plunge on the FTSE here in the UK versus about 1.4, 1.3 off the, the French-German stock market. So this morning, we are chasing a recovery picture across the boards. It's a triple-digit uh, point day to the upside anticipated for German stocks. We're chasing 106 from the outset. So it does, does look as though we'll be uh, setting the scene for a firmer day of trade. Uh, Jeff. Yeah, thanks very much. Very good morning, Karen. Good morning. Nice to be back in the uh, studio this morning. Very promising uh, for a counter-trend rally at this point, it would seem, doesn't it? I mean, we've just got to keep a close eye on those yields and see where we go from here. I don't think the Chinese data is going to help particularly. Uh, Factory activity grew at its slowest pace in nine months in February as weaker overseas demand put a toll on the country's output. Um, Let's get out to Sam, who can tell us a little bit more about this. Um, Sam, exactly why are we seeing a little bit of weakness on this data series? Good morning to you, Jeff. Nice to see you there. Well, there are a few reasons behind this slightly disappointing data, but I would like to point out firstly that factory activity in China typically slows down around the Lunar New Year holiday, particularly as a lot of those migrant workers do head back home, although this year they were urged to stay put as authorities tried to slow down the spread of that fresh outbreak. But certainly production is still a lot quieter. Of course, China was also uh, implementing those pretty aggressive steps still to try to keep a lid on things when it came to that outbreak. And so that all played into this factory activity actually growing at its slowest pace in nine months. That Caixin manufacturing PMI came in at 50.9. So still above that line that separates expansion from contraction despite the Lunar New Year lull. In terms of what really dragged down the overall headline number, uh, manufacturers, as I said, did say they were still dealing from the fallout from uh, that flare up in cases uh, over in China domestically. China, of course, put millions under lock down and that put a lot of pressure uh, on things like raw materials and also uh, transport. So there were some hefty delays, but this was also partly down uh, to overseas demand cooling. So export orders actually shrank for a second month in a row. Companies also laid off workers for a third month. Employment actually fell to its weakest uh, level uh, since 2018. Now, of course, this survey does look at the smaller and private firms in China, but it is largely consistent with those official numbers as we got out yesterday, which does look at the big and state-owned firms. Uh, in terms of moving forward, some economists don't expect this to be uh, very much long-lived. And actually, the outlook for businesses was rather rosy. The fact that many migrant workers did stay put means that the resumption of a lot of this production uh, will happen a lot quicker. And with the vaccine rollout and this global recovery we are seeing, uh, many expect those exports to pick up uh, in the coming months. At the same time, uh, we are still of course, seeing some of these weak pockets uh, in this recovery story over in China with things like consumption. And so uh, with this softening demand that we have seen in a lot of this data, and particularly with these PMI uh, numbers today, that uh, certainly does uh, support this case for the PBOC not to exit too soon when it comes to monetary policy. Guys, back to you in London. Terrific, Sam. Thank you so much for that. Let's just look at uh, Julius Baer here. The uh, Swiss bank uh, has given us an announcement, a fresh announcement on a new uh, buyback program. So let's just walk you through the facts here. Um, Julius Baer reminding us that the uh, program they had in place was suspended in March 2020 
due to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic announcements, obviously an effort to conserve capital at this point. Um, the group, though, says um, that it will start a new program to buy back up to 450 million Swiss franc uh, worth of uh, Julius Baer Group shares. Uh, the uh, buyback program will be launched on the 2nd of March 2021 and is expected to run until the end of February 2022. Uh, shares that have been bought under the new program are expected to be cancelled through capital pro- uh, capital reduction uh, to be proposed at the AGM uh, in 2022. If you take a look at actually the one-year chart here, Julius Bears had a reasonable run-up across the year. They're still off their 2018 highs, uh, but on a uh, one-year and even a a year-to-date view, as you can see here, it's been a a story of gradual ascent for Julius Bear shares, a reflection perhaps of the market reappraising the opportunity for uh, at least some of the Swiss banks that have a good stake in the fund management business at this point, even as, uh, as we know, you know you, you're having to deal with negative rates at the moment and a very weak NIM environment. I think what you've seen from some of the Swiss banks has been a little bit in contrast to other banks across Europe. There's been you know, a pattern where these banks have sort of been curtailed around those uh, hand, handing back to, to shareholders and share buybacks or dividends or sort of cash payouts that uh, many investors have been seeking. But I think the regulatory environment has been quite different. In Switzerland, you've seen all the banks really go for it. It's yeah. been uh, very much front-loaded. And perhaps that is positioning. You know, invest in us while we can pay out these uh, sizable returns at this point uh, versus our other European counterparts that are somewhat restricted. Uh, so keep your eye on the share uh, today. Uh, See, see what kind of reaction we get on the back of the news that they will be um, uh, conducting this uh, share buyback program here. Um, the U.S. House of Representatives has passed the White House's $1.9 trillion stimulus package in a vote largely along party lines, receiving no Republican support. The plan includes direct payments and extension of unemployment support, as well as local government assistance. The bill now moves to the Senate which will pass a different version of the bill after deciding against including the federal minimum wage proposal, which was passed by the House. President Biden says he hopes Congress will move swiftly. Now the bill moves to the United States Senate, where I hope we will receive quick action. I have, we have no time to waste. If we act now decisively, quickly and boldly, we can finally get ahead of this virus we can finally get our economy moving again. And the people of this country have suffered far too much for too long. We need to relieve that suffering. The American Rescue Plan does just that. It relieves the suffering. And it's time to act. Well, let's get to uh, Rebecca Harding then, the CEO of Coriolis Technologies. Rebecca, very good morning to you. Look, we'll we'll get on to um, some of your pet peeves like vaccine nationalism presently. But maybe I could just ask you about trade and uh, more broadly, the direction that we're seeing in uh, trade volume. Uh, Interesting that we got the Chinese PMIs this morning suggesting just a little bit of weakness in those headline numbers and the market ascribing that to perhaps just a drop off in demand for Chinese exported products. Are you seeing that in the flow? 
Yes, absolutely. And I think um, what's what's worrying is that trade hasn't actually got quite back up to the level that it was pre-pandemic. So um, we're beginning to see um, we're beginning to see it soften a little bit. It always softens at this time of year. So um, I have to point out that the the Chinese New Year always creates a little bit of softening in the trade flow itself. But that said, we're we're looking at year-on-year changes that are actually still in negative territory. So it's it's a big concern actually. That, that trade isn't picking up in the same way. And I think some of this is actually because of the huge structural change in trade itself that we've seen over the last 12 months. I mean, it's just not being conducted in the same way. We've got more digital trade, we've got more local trade, local supply chains, and it's, it's completely reconfiguring the way the trade landscape works. What's been interesting, I think, is, is just how we've seen some of the shippers take capacity off of the seas and that's resulted in a spike in shipping prices. I note that a lot of the US retailers now are starting to worry about margin given the higher cost of transportation. Yeah, and this is a real problem. I mean, we've seen freight costs around the world rise. Um, and, and interestingly, um, you know, if you look at the whole debate that's going on in financial markets at the moment, monetary markets around and bond markets around whether or not they're going to be inflationary pressures, we're actually seeing a lot of that actually not come from monetary policy, um, not come from pent up demand, but actually come from those freight prices and those shipping costs that are there. I mean, there's, there, there is actually pressure within the trade system for for this for prices to be rising. Rebecca, we saw some trade data out of the United States on Friday too. Uh, effectively, uh, the deficit uh, widened to 83.7 billion in January. What are we looking up to? What, what are we looking out for this year when we've got this Biden supposedly reset in relations with Beijing, but yet uh, not much uh, flesh on the bones around it? We saw a lot of concerns Friday about uh, a, a rule that also hits back against Chinese technology. So, what can we hope for for the year ahead? Um, So I think we're not going to see much change in terms of the relationship between Biden um, or the United States and China. First things first, America is still very much on its um, campaign to buy American. So Biden, although he may have changed rhetoric, started to look like he's a little bit softer on the multilateral front, he's still very much about the buy America, restore America's belief in itself, restore its presence on the global stage, but also make sure that he's not undermining um, undermining the policy of the last four years on China. Um, there's a very strong public sentiment in the US um, that China's technology needs to be dealt with. We are still seeing, I mean, we saw at the Munich Security Conference, we've seen um, in, in policy statements that the US administration is still very concerned about, um, about Chinese technology and how that's impacting on the United States and global security more generally. So I think what's likely to happen is that um, is that the US will start to bring its allies together around a trade agenda, a trade and technology agenda, perhaps linking trade deals more to um, the types of discussion around um, isolating Chinese technology.
Effectively, the rule that uh, may go into force is a Trump-style era uh, reform around technology effectively means that the Commerce Department can ban technology that it sees as a security threat, a national security threat. But that creates a lot of grey areas as to the level of enforcement. And one of the problems when the Trump policies were being rolled out, we didn't know which companies in China were going to be impacted, which companies that dealt with Chinese companies would also be hit by any sanctions. So what do you make of the uncertainty? Because this encapsulates so many new areas of the economy now as we talk about technology. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think it's a really important point that it's the Commerce Department implementing all of this and not the Trade Department. Um, and if you look at EU trade strategy that was published 10 days ago, it's exactly the same thing. It's about industrial policy. It's not about trade policy. So what we're, sh- what we're seeing is this shift away from the very black and white zero sum, I'm going to whack a tariff on this and hope that it reduces our deficit. I win, you lose because I can export more, you can export less. What we're seeing is a shift into a much more complex area where you've got the risk of secondary sanctions against technologies, against companies trading with um, companies or the US dollar touching um, trade in in companies with um, a tech interest in China. And I think it's this shift into um, the way in which businesses operate is actually going to have a dampening effect because it's very complicated and nobody is completely sure about how fast that sanctions regime is going to move. Yeah, and Rebecca, let's let's focus on other things that could dampen the recovery at this point, and that's the rollout of vaccines. Um, you, you've written a paper on your concerns around how vaccine nationalism is affecting the rollout and the effectiveness of these vaccines. We've got this bizarre situation now where they seem to have a surplus, at least, of AstraZeneca vaccines in some European countries because of the statements that politicians have made around their efficacy. Just share with us your concern at this stage. Um, The markets are already believing the reflation rebound is baked in. You're suggesting there may be some risks based on what you're seeing with vaccines. Yeah, and I think I think the issue here is that um, vaccine nationalism is actually number one. It's it's preventing a smooth rollout because countries are worrying about how much they've got for themselves and not thinking about the global problem. And actually, this is a global problem. Drug the the vaccines are produced in different countries. Different parts of the vaccines are produced in different countries. It's a global supply chain. It's always been a global supply chain, um, and the research and development behind it is global as well. So where countries start to say, well, we need to have our doses for ourselves before we start um, sending things out across the world, it's actually restricting it's actually restricting the trade flow in vaccines. And the market, at, even before COVID, was worth nearly 40 billion a year. So it's a huge um, market just specifically for vaccines and it's growing incredibly quickly. You know, we're seeing we're seeing this escalate at the moment. But if but at the moment as well, what we're seeing is 98 countries around the world actually have um, vac- vaccine trade restrictions on their on the way in which on the way in which vaccines can flow around the world, and that has to be a concern. 
Rebecca, we'll say goodbye, but thanks so much for the analysis this morning. Rebecca Harding, the CEO of Coriolis Technologies. Karen. And Jeff, as we look to wrap up the month, uh, what uh, we're taking a look back at has been a fairly strong performing February, but uh, on the back of what has been a fairly torturous week for investors' long stocks. So the Dow at one point uh, got to 32,000 points, a record high. All this on the back of assurances from the Federal Reserve and Jay Powell that uh, the interest rate environment would stay very uh, low at this point, trying to get the US back to a stronger economic foothold. After that, though, we saw yields start to march higher again. And it was at that backdrop that saw the market sell off fairly aggressively last week. But despite the sell off, I mean, if you look at the the pace of uh, decline over last week, 1.8% stripped off the Dow. We still had a a month where the index gained more than 3%. So it wasn't a bad turn of events if you take a look at the the overall outcome. But in terms of levels, you know, we had 32,000 on the charts. Now we're back below the 31,000. so we've fallen through those levels. A quick look at the S&P by comparison to that 3.1% gain, 2.6% higher for the month. So not as strong. And of course, some mixed fortunes when you talk about more technology names uh, splashed across the S&P as well. And that was a, a story that we saw unfold during February, this rotation away from technology into cyclical areas of the market. Uh, that was a feature that at uh, certain points also roiled the NASDAQ. A quick look at uh, that market because the, the sell-off has been so aggressive what we have witnessed now, the index below its 50-day moving average on the NASDAQ uh, over the course of the month, only up at 09 of a percent. And many of uh, the various months that have come before, we've seen the outperformance by the NASDAQ versus uh, what you said on the Dow, for instance. But it was an underperformer during the session. And uh, worth noting that over the course of the week and the month, you've also seen uh, those declines. For the week, it's been down 4.9%. So a fairly sizable drop for the tech-heavy index. At Treasuries, uh, this has been the epicenter for some of those fears and the decline uh, uh, that you've seen on the yield. But uh, the note itself, uh, what we've got, 30% uh, change over the course of a month. Very stunning change in fortunes for a so-called safe haven. You've seen it on other global trades too uh, and the bond markets. So that's a fairly significant move. 1.40. Don't forget uh, these moves would be even more sizable if you considered that we're at 1.61. If we'd closed around that level during the week. Uh, but at this stage, 1.40, Jeff. Terrific, Karen. Thank you. We'll take the break. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway announcing a record share buyback as the billionaire investor says there is more to come. We'll talk about that when we return. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has said his career in politics may not be over. Speaking at the Conservative Political Action Conference's annual meeting, his first major appearance since leaving office, Trump took aim at the Biden administration, continuing to refuse to accept election defeat. Actually, as you know, they just lost the White House, but it's one of those things. But who knows? Who knows? I may even decide to beat them for a third time, okay? 
Uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway bought a record $24.7 billion in company stock in 2020, nearly five times the previous high in his annual investor letter. Buffett defended the buyback, saying it'll help give the business more flexibility to handle future problems. Meanwhile, full-year operating income fell by 9%, as strong fourth-quarter performance failed to offset the fallout from the pandemic and for more highlights from Buffett's investor letter, including why he thinks a miscalculation led to a $10 billion loss for Berkshire, head to our website. That's CNBC.com. So interesting. I mean, $25 billion worth of buyback for 2020. Warren Buffett, I think, has made it fairly clear over the years that if he believes that the share price is undervalued, then he and Charlie Munger will sit down and make a decision about whether to buy back shares. Mm -hmm. And clearly they felt there was a significant uh, valuation gap for full year 2020. I think what's interesting uh, in the letter and what's implied from what was said, there is plenty more of this to come still. And he still believes that there is a performance gap when it comes to what could be achieved by the shares. But what I thought was interesting is that nothing is ever straightforward when it comes to Warren Buffett and his view on the markets and that he peppered the letter at the same time with comments about when it's good to buy and when other corporates should not buy and suggesting that there are too many other companies out there who are buying when the share price is high rather than taking advantage of any dips. Right. I mean, he still has exposures to uh, fixed income. You know, Effectively, he was calling out those that have gone down the risky end of the curve uh, that have taken on uh, more exposure, higher risk, trying to get those rewards when he said, uh, effectively, you've got inadequate interest rates. So the, that's a, a nod to them being so low at this point. But they slightly reduced their holdings of corporate debt in the quarter and, and cash by about $113 billion. So that was held in short-term treasury bills at the year end. Still have $3.4 billion worth of longer-term U.S. debt, so still in the market to an extent. But this also mirrors what we, we were hearing from a lot of fund managers, that you don't want to be parked in some of the sovereigns anymore. Traditionally, they would to hedge the portfolio. You have a lot of equity and you have a lot in the bond portfolio, but they never thought that that was really going to hold up in this type of interest rate environment. So you, you've seen that pivot towards alternatives. So I think it's a reflection of what we've already seen out there in the markets in some ways. I think there was a lot of frustration as well among the investor community who looked at this letter because of what was missing. And I don't know whether you picked up on a lot of that, but there was not really anything significant in there about the electoral process and whether Biden is going to be better than Trump and so on and so forth. There wasn't a huge amount in there around the prospects for inflation, but clearly by stating his concern around uh, uh, bond investments, I think he's kind of nailed his colours to the mast in the sense that he thinks we've troughed here on interest rates, Uh, but it wasn't as explicit as many would have hoped at this point. And of course, there was the usual homily to buy America, never vote against the United States effectively. But ironic that as he says that, you know, there is this major commitment to buy back shares and they still have hundred and nearly $140 billion in cash reserves sitting there 
waiting to acquire businesses. And the fact that he's not doing that at this point also perhaps suggests that he feels that these markets are fairly valued. A big signaling function, isn't it, when Buffett's buying back his own stock? Uh, what are other CEOs going to do at this point? You know, we've just gone through a wave of criticism uh, in the pandemic about companies embarking upon share buybacks. But I think you're going to see a lot of leadership on this issue from Buffett. That's the point around not commenting on, you know, on Biden and the administration at this point. Mm. I think it's in there in terms of the stock purchases. Mm. We saw it in the 13F filings recently that he's uh, got a bet on this cyclical recovery as well, the way he was transitioning the portfolio and even lightening up on some of those big technology names that have benefited from ultra-low interest rates. That pivot has happened and also towards, you know, 5G, that's an infrastructure spend in, in the technology sector, so it's a different type of bet on technology. But is it a bet around the, the economic recovery uh, that is being uh, steered from the Biden administration? Yes, it is, I think. So uh, I would say the equities portfolio and that repositioning is telling just what he thinks. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.